Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Neander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the favorite jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview a composer, arranger, three times Golden Melody winner, trombonist from Joram, North Carolina, Terrence Shea. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange. Today, we have Terrence Shea with us, sir. Thank you for joining us. Nice to meet you. Nice to be on the show. Can you please tell the people about you, and then we'll get into it. Yeah. Uh, My name is Terrence Shea. Um, I'm a, I guess I'm I'm a producer uh, and a session musician, and I'm based in the greater China area, which includes you know, a lot of Mandarin speaking countries, uh, like, uh, you know, China, the mainland, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and, you know, includes, uh, uh, some of the Southeast Asian areas, places like Singapore, which also, um, speak Mandarin. Um, and I, I've been working in the pop music industry and I initially came here as a jazz musician, um, but uh, have sort of transitioned into this current role that I'm, you know, filling uh, over the last 10 years. And uh, I've been here, you know, like I said, 10 years and it's been it's been a pretty wild ride. <laughs> uh, we're going to get into that. Yeah, because I am curious. First of all, where did you study? Uh, I went to Oberlin. Uh, OK. Oberlin College and Conservatory and I graduated in 2012 in, in Ohio. Yes. <laughs> so, yep. everyone, this is the trombonist Kevin was talking about on his episode. And yeah. I looked into your stuff, and you have an impressive background there, too. So, oh, man. <laughs> you played with Robin and Miguel. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Robin was my teacher at, at Oberlin. Um, I studied with him for five years, you know, because I did the double degree program, and it was one of the most you know, to this day, one of the most amazing experiences I've had in my entire life because Robin is what isn't, wasn't, continues to be like a huge mentor to me. And, um, I, you know, he's, he's such a role model and a, and a, and a, and a you know, a, a shining beacon of like being Hope. a musician who's not just like stuck in one, you know, category or another. And he really pushes boundaries on the instrument and, had such a fundamental uh, effect on and profound and long lasting effect on my sound. So uh, that was, you know, great. And I, and I met Kevin through Miguel, actually. Um, I had, I did a record in 2013 and I asked Miguel to be on it and, and uh, we can kind of continue to stay in touch over the years. And then when Kevin was graduating from, NEC and Harvard, uh, Miguel said, Hey, I got this student of mine who's come to China to kind of spend a little more time checking out his roots and maybe you guys can hang out and chop it. And it was great, man. Like we became like really good friends and, um, have continued to do so through, through, uh, through today. Okay. So back before that, I'm just curious. So <laughs> the blue note, actually, no, let's go to. I'm just curious yeah. about one thing on Robin first. I'm sorry. Did he yeah, yeah, did course. he mention anything about Art Blakey often? 
because that's an album I have with him. Yeah, I mean, he he had some there there were some crazy stories he used to tell me about Art Blakey. Uh, some of them I probably cannot tell you. Uh, I can't say on public Boom. out in public, but <laughs> but uh, but you know, he used to tell me that like between Art, um, you know that you know, you know Robin's like whole thing is his solo playing where he can just kind of riff on an idea for like a long time. You know, he can play solo trombone and just go for 20 minutes, you know, and, and that I think really developed during his time with art where sometimes art Blakey would just get tired and he'd just go to the bar and he'd just, he'd point at Robin and be like, start playing and don't stop until I get back. You know? <laughs> so Robin would have to take these like crazy long solos and so he started to develop this, at least, you know, when we were uh, hanging out, he told me this is where he kind of began to develop this like motivic concept of like riffing on an idea and building it for a very, being able to build on it and kind of take it in different places for a very long time. Um, it's a, it's a really cool thing. And it kind of came out of necessity. <laughs> so he just wanted to get some drinks and poor Robin had it. Okay. Yeah, because he was the, like the youngest guy in the band, you know, and oh, and, and yeah. they were like, he was just like, yo, all right, it's on you now. <laughs> you, you better still be up here playing when I get back. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and give me a story of Miguel. Come on. Man, uh, Miguel and I, you know, when we hung out in in Beijing, it was it was like really interesting because I, you know, we, uh, the cool thing about like being able to hang out with musicians in faraway foreign countries is they're not like tied into their like New York kind of hustle thing where they're, where there's like go to the gig, do the gig, and then gotta leave, gotta catch a train back home, whatever, you know? Um, so it was, it was pretty awesome just getting to hang out with Miguel in a relaxed setting. We, we spent one night where we got like, we got Peking Duck and, uh, um, oh, I've got a great story. So I, I took Miguel to a, a friend of mine, uh, who actually Kevin also knows really well because he makes saxophone mouthpieces. And, um, you know, he takes blanks and he like, uh, and he makes, you know, replicas of like what he thinks are like, you know, designed for famous, you know, musicians. So he's made like Lester Young ones and Charlie Parker ones and Brecker and he takes he'll take a, a blank and he'll like reface it into to try and get like that sound from from that artist and so uh, every time a musician would come in through the blue note and we would hang out and they were a sax player um, I'd take them to see Shijal because uh, they had heard things about him because he's like they're not that many saxophone mouthpiece refacer guys um, and so I took Miguel to see Liu Shijal and I think Liu Shijal made him like seven or eight different copies of, you know, the, the mouthpiece sort of that he plays from a blank and like shaved them into different ways that, uh, you know, he thought would sound good for, for Miguel. And Miguel went through like five, five of them. And then on the sixth one, he kind of stopped. He was like, Yo, man, he's like, I haven't changed my mouthpiece in like 20 years, but I think I'm going to keep this one. <laughs> mm. And he, and he and I don't, I don't know if he still plays it or not, or maybe he keeps it as a backup, but 
he was like laughing to himself. He's like, I think I'm going to keep this one. <laughs> and, and, uh, and that was it. And then, you know, we, we hung out for the rest of the day and he kept kind of talking about this mouthpiece on off. He's like, man, that's crazy. So okay. Miguel's, Miguel's great. That's one place I never thought you would find a mouthpiece though. I know, right? This <laughs> random guy, and he doesn't even live in Beijing anymore. Um, he lives in Tongshan, which is like outside of Beijing, like quite, quite a far ways outside. He's got his machine shop out there and his lathe and everything. And he, he, he's, he was a sax player and I knew him for, I had known him since like 2009. And he kind of started getting into this concept of that he wanted to just do mouthpieces. And that was his, his thing. Uh, and, 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 and he, he, we, we did one for Mark Turner. Uh, he okay. did one for James Carter, uh, and, and Miguel and a, a couple other guys. It was so pretty cool to watch the reaction. Yeah. <laughs> this is literally like yeah. a legit business idea. I know. I know. And I think he's, but you know, he's really an, uh, an artiste about it. Like it really makes, he really has to like perfect it. You know, and so for him to come up with like six or seven models is, yes, um, it's a lot of work for him. And, and so I really think for him, it's more of a, a love. Uh, and I hope he, I hope he can expand it. But I, you know, sometimes I, I go out there and I see him and he's like, yeah, I, I haven't done anything in a while. It's also not been great because not that many just now, you know, starting after, after COVID, like three years later. We're starting to be able to get musicians to come back to China, um, to, to be able to play, uh, and, and tour in China because the country was basically sealed off for like the last three years during COVID. So maybe he'll start up again, uh, in earnest. Okay. Yeah. Let me ask you, what made you move over there? You were from North Carolina, correct? Yeah. Yeah. I grew up. Wow. <laughs> You, you did your homework. <laughs> yeah, I, I grew up in Durham, Chapel Hill. Um, and, you know, the the thing about Durham and Chapel Hill was like, it was, it's not really a place that most people would have on the radar in terms of like, you know, a, a place for like jazz or like, you know, I, there, I mean, there are a lot of church gigs and a lot of blues and stuff going on out there, but not really a place that people, I think, you know, in the global scene would like, you know, put on the map for like as a jazz spot, but actually, man, there, I mean, there were some really killing musicians growing up that, you know, people who are to me still like, you know, my favorite trumpet player, you know, somebody, you know, Al Strong, uh, the trumpet player, he's, he's one of my, my favorite trumpet players to date. Um, and, you know, so many great cats live out there and, and we have this kind of three, Universe, try university kind of thing going where there's just a lot of music happening. So growing up, I sort of in my high school years, I started to get exposed and that's, that's where I got, uh, that's where I met Robin. Um, so Robin kind of, I, I, you know, through high school clinics and stuff, he sort of recruited me to the trombone section and, uh, at Oberlin. And while I was at Oberlin, uh, I was taking a lot of Chinese courses as well because I, I actually didn't grow up speaking that much Mandarin, but, uh, I really wanted to get in touch with my roots and learn. I think Kevin was 
also very similar, although I don't know how much Mandarin he took in school. I, for me, I decided to like try to take Mandarin classes so that I could reconnect with my roots and, you know, understand the culture better. And that led me to kind of going back to Beijing in 2009 for a summer intensive like study program uh, in Mandarin. And I think like this, the, the fourth or fourth week, you know, it was like a Friday night. I had brought my horn with me to just do some like shedding uh, to stay in, in shape for when I got back in, in the fall semester. Um, and I started like at the time, Google, you could still use Google in China. And so I just kind of looked up. I was like, where are the, where are the jazz bars in, in, in Beijing? And I saw this place, East Shore, popped up on my Google Maps. And I just went ahead and looked at, you know, looked at it. It had a pretty good rating and people said nice things about the music. So I said, oh, why not just show up on Friday and see, see what happens? And so I did, you know, and it's in this, you know, this uh, pretty touristy like lake area of the center of Beijing called Hohai. And it's on the second floor. And I remember I walked in and I just blown away immediately. Like the band was so killing. And it was like Chinese guys and American guys playing together. And, you know, the music really felt like it was honest and locked in with, you know, what anybody could be doing in, in New York. You know, like it was um, one of my favorite sax players in, in Beijing. His name is, he's really a vanguard of the scene, Nathaniel Gao. Um, and Xia Jia, this piano player, Zhang Ke on bass and Bei Bei on drums. And these four guys were just like having a conversation, you know, the whole time. Um, and it was a Friday night and I was like, man, when is the, when you get to experience this, just like walking in to a, a random jazz bar, then hearing that kind of music. Uh, and so it, Immediately, I was like convinced. I was like, "I, right, this, there's something going on here." So, when I finished the program, and I barely finished the program because I basically played <laughs> hooky after that, and was like hanging out with these guys, you know, instead of, you know, going to class and stuff. <laughs> um, but it got it gave me kind of like a taste of like what, you know, you could be doing as a, as a as a as a musician in you know in in real life. And I think, you know, ultimately for, you know, conservatories like, or, or music school, like that's kind of what they want you to experience. It's like, what it's uh, like being, a, I have my problems with being conservatories. A, a real musician, you know, that, right? Yeah. But yeah, okay. I know. Right. Okay. <laughs> Maybe not conservatories, but you know, at least the faculty at school, like they might give you a little bit of pass because, you know, um, you're getting, you're getting real life work experience. So anyways, uh, I barely passed the program, but. I uh, I came back to Oberlin and I started thinking to myself like how can I how can I get back over there? So you know I I was applying for grants and I had a f a friend in Beijing who like helped me kind of organize and finance some of these uh, small little winter tours. So every winter I basically just put together a little group to come back to Beijing and just you know play music and hang out. So we did this like four or five times and. Um, and then when I graduated in 2012, I kind of decided to myself, well, you know, I can move to New York 
And at that time, I was like, I, I don't think I'm ready to deal with how insane New York is. And I said, you know, if I don't move to New York, what are my other options? And I thought to myself, well, Beijing is kind of cool. Like, give it a year, give it two, see what happens. If it doesn't work out, you know, I can always come back and, you know, do, do something to make ends meet and then move to New York and, you know, get it together then. But, and here I still am, you know, 10 years later. <laughs> no, I actually love that story because <laughs> I tell people all the time, everyone wants to come to New York thinking they're just going to make it like that. Sometimes no. you need to develop more before you come here so you don't get burnt out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so many of my, my friends, you know, my colleagues from Oberlin, you know, they, I remember we were all hanging out one night and everybody, you know, right before graduation, everybody was talking about what they wanted to do. And sort of the elephant in the room was like, how many of us are planning to move to New York? And a lot, most of us at the time were like, I don't think I'm ready. <laughs> um, and a lot of them ended up in New York and, and, and they're doing really, really well now. Uh, but I think if we hadn't taken that gap year or two or five, you know, some, some of us took like eight years to get out to New York. Someone still hadn't moved out to New York yet. Um, but then make the, you know, the trips to go out there to like, you know, do the homework and check out the sessions and things. Um, How many of them are still playing though? If you had a percentage. Man, of my graduating class at Oberlin, you know, I would actually venture to say that a fairly high number of people I know who graduated in my year or around my year are like doing really well in the industry. They may not necessarily be in jazz anymore, like me, um, but but they're but they're playing music and they're making a living, and you can't fault them for that. Right? No, I can't fault them <laughs> at all for that. <laughs> They're surviving, you know, and that's, that's a, you know, after, after a fair amount of time out in the real world, like just being able to survive is, is a feat in itself, right? I give you that. <laughs> okay. So how did the Blue Note Beijing Jazz Orchestra even start? Cause you started it. You're the founder. And that's, how did, that's correct. Yeah. <laughs> how did you even get the rights to that name? I'm. Yeah. So. The Blue Note, um, you know, back in, I think about 2014, 2015, maybe even earlier than that, there was like plans, um, for the Blue Note clubs, um, to expand a location to China. And they, I think they didn't know where it was going to be. And, you know, at that time they were still looking for investors. And we kind of heard these rumblings like pretty early on, but, you know, it was one of those things where we really just didn't think it was ever going to happen. Why would they ever open a jazz club in, 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 in China, you know, uh, an international branded jazz club in China? So around 2016, they really did actually break ground on the, on the place. And, uh, it's kind of a ridiculous location. It's like <clears throat> where the, the original American embassy, uh, the courtyard, which the American embassy has now moved outside, <coughs> excuse me, outside of, um, Further out in Beijing, not that far out, but, you know, a couple miles from the original location. But it's literally within stone's throw distance of Tiananmen Square. Like you can throw a stone and, and, and hit, hit the forbidden city. 
from from that location. And they literally dug out the courtyard and they put a basement, a giant like sprawling complex underground. And the club is in the underground. So when they first invited us, um, a couple of, uh, you know, people who were kind of familiarizing themselves with the Beijing scene back then, they, they told us it was going to be in, in Beijing. And, and I, we were pretty like astounded, like what, why Beijing, you know, but for them, it was like important because they wanted to make it a long-term venture in China, not just Beijing. And it made sense because, um, the, political center and the cultural center of Beijing, uh, of China really is Beijing still. So they had these plans to go in and, um, uh, Yiling, who was the, the, the programs coordinator for the, um, the Blue Note reached out to me at the time and told me she was interested in getting a meeting together with me and the boss, uh, to put together a, a big band uh, for the house uh, for the, for the for the house band for the for the club and so uh you know in 2016 i had a couple meetings and i mean i think the real thing with being a band leader is like there of, of course there's a musical element um and and being the music director is like the musical element you have to be on top of that but um, also like the organization, because there really wasn't any, I mean, as everybody knows, running a big band is like one of the work. most brutal and like, that's a lot of work. You know, yeah. It's so much work. You got to print your charts, you know, this, that, you got to write charts, print charts, commission charts, like make sure everybody gets rehearsal on time, make sure everybody's having fun with the music. You know, it's, it's, it's just a, it's crazy. Um, so yeah, the, the doing that for like almost two years, and sort of setting up and marketing these shows and like learning a lot about what it takes to, to get a show to be successful. And I think that to me is one of the things that, uh, I, I learned a lot about on doing that gig, which helped me a lot in the pop music world, which is one of the, one of the core tenets that I think we as musicians disagree with a lot with venues is like how much we're supposed to market our show versus how much they're supposed to market their show. And like all these elements that come together to make, you know, a successful performance. And I think that, uh, for, you know, for the long, longest time for myself, I really spurned the idea of like, you know, needing to do any kind of marketing. I don't want to put any posters. I don't want to like talk about myself. I don't want to do any of this. You know, it's your job to make the show happen. And I think, Doing that, sh doing that gig made me realize it's really like a symbiosis of the two. Like you, you got to work together and you got to make it do it in a way, especially when there's so much on the line for a venue like that. Um, and since they're putting a hundred percent, you know, of the risk, there's like a relationship that you kind of have to work on. And it's different for every venue and it's different for every, every, every group. But you had known but, that uh, well. In that short amount of time for them to email you to do yeah. this. Well, I mean, working on that, you know, with them over those two years, you know, really gave me that experience of like knowing how to make, you know, a show successful. Uh, 
and the and the kind of you know extra work <laughs> it takes um stuff that a lot of us just don't like to talk about like no. why we're playing the music we're playing what kind of music we're playing you know why we picked this music why you know why they why the audience should come and listen to it when they could be like going out to like check out pop music every night you know is that something that they would honestly Chinese people having very little exposure to jazz music, you know, before 19, 1976, really like the early 2000s. Why should they listen to something that has nothing, you know, means nothing to them except, uh, you know, except that it's Western, you know. Um, and how do you get around we, that? Well, I mean, you know, so here's here's the interesting thing about jazz music in China. It's there's definitely a, like a class, a class mentality to it, like, which is hilarious to us in the in America because, you know, jazz music to us is like expression and freedom, musical freedom, artistic freedom, um, you know, the ability to put what we want to say exactly how we want to say it, you know, in our own terms. But, in, you know, at least for the mainstream audience in China, and, you know, I'm generalizing, of course, because there are people who really do appreciate, you know, the music on, on, a, on, a, on a really deep level. But I, I would say for the mainstream audience in China, it's like, you know, it's, it's, it definitely has a class mentality. It's like cigars, jazz, and wine, you know, that's, that's what they think of when they hear jazz, you know. Um, and so it was a chance to spend money. Okay. So you think that Blue Note invasion is actually making a profit? I don't know if they're making a profit. I, I would imagine given the rent that they're paying on that. Okay. That fair, fair, space, fair. It's probably not that venue itself is, is probably not doing that great in terms of turning over a profit, but you know, they have a, a multi, uh, you know, a multi franchise expansion. You know, they have a location now in, in Shanghai and obviously they're having these pretty, you know, big corporate partnerships with airlines and, you know, American express and like things like that. So for them, it's like, you know, it, it is about like the network that they can build, but yeah, it's uh you know, I, I would definitely say that at least for the average consumer, you know, jazz music represents kind of a, a, a classy dinner, night out kind of thing okay see i'm learning a whole bunch of stuff i don't really know much <laughs> about that side of the world in terms of jazz so i actually thank you again for coming on and oh. educating me on this so and, and yeah yeah i i i uh you know obviously i'm speaking from my personal experience which is you know these 10 years and you know i i, I think there is you know there is a really deeply culturally expressive and artistically liberated, you know, music community in Beijing. And those are the guys that I mostly play with, but at least to do the, the blue note, that gig was definitely a very corporate experience. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. I got to ask, so <laughs> why did you leave that gig and dump it on poor Kevin? <laughs> Well, actually, Kevin, you know, I, I, I left the gig, you know, there, 
I had some differences with the way that they wanted to run things at the Blue Note. I think, uh, you know, there was just a lot of, you know, when you're, when you're running that kind of gig with putting on that many shows a month, it was, it was just two, but you know, two, one or two. And then, um, and there's not really a lot of people have different ideas about how these shows should be played, how they should be marketed, how they, you know, what kind of music you're playing. And, you know, I, I, my, the decision to leave was like in part because, um, of those differences. And then, and then, um, actually I didn't dump the gig on Kevin. I think they picked Kevin as the, the next, uh, leader, which I think it was a great idea because he's really, uh, you know, he, he can really focus on the, the music that you know, he wanted to play. And I think that's the beauty of the artistic directors that you get to pick the music that you want. And then the next guy gets to pick the music they want. And the band takes on a different, you know, vibe, um, depending on what each guy does. So he was really, I think more focused on doing like modern, a lot more like modern big band arrangements. And the artists that he brought in were like, you know, pushing boundaries in a lot of different areas than the ways, the ones that I brought in. Um, so for me, I was like focused kind of more on like traditional big band stuff. Uh, like we did a lot of Thad Jones, like Vanguard stuff and <clears throat> Count Basie and things like that. And, um, and he really focused on like modern jazz composers for big band, like Darcy James Argue and Maria Schneider and like stuff like that, which is tough shit to play, you know? <laughs> yes. Uh, but you heard his music. He likes that stuff. And, uh, yeah, Kevin, <laughs> Kevin is all about, all about the struggle, you know? So. <laughs> Which I, I love about him. That's, that's his, his thing. It's like, it doesn't have to sound good, you know, but you have to like, you know, make the effort. <laughs> yeah. Well said. <laughs> so were you also doing a crazy commute like him where he was flying over there, hopping off the plane just to practice and do a gig? No, you know, I, I, for me, I was living in Beijing at the time. Okay. So, you know, I, all I had to do was, uh, you know, just take a cab downtown. But for him, you know, he had to like make the commute. And, and he, you know, I actually had him on a couple gigs that uh, at the time when I was the band leader, like we, I, I think the most, for me, the most, the most memorable gig uh, that I had in that band. And maybe like one of the most memorable gigs of all time was like, we had uh, Mike Mossman and, and Mark, Mark Turner come through and like Mark Turner playing big band is like, you know, being the featured soloist. That was unbelievable. Like, you know, he doesn't, Mark doesn't, you know, play standards that much. Um, at least, you know, I, I haven't seen that many because I haven't been to New York in a while. I haven't seen that many videos, bootleg videos or heard that many recordings of him playing standards these days. Uh, so t for him to just like play a whole night of like standards um, and, and we, you know, I wanted to do the Joe Henderson big band album as much of the stuff. And that's kind of why I also brought Mossman in because he had that, you know, not only was he the arranger, but he has a lot of the perspective on like what was going on in that session as one of the guys who was, was in that recording session. So uh, we, we played a bunch of the charts and he, you know, gave me a couple and I got, a couple from slide um 
and it was it was pretty amazing like the number of courses that he can take on you know record me without repeating a single thing That's... is like <laughs> unbelievable you know it's like you know i i couldn't even get the sax section to like play the backgrounds because they're Everybody, it's like videos, like their jaws are just like on the floor the whole time. I'm like, guys, backgrounds, backgrounds. They're just like, <laughs> you know? I mean, I'm pretty sure they never thought they'll be playing with him. So that also, <laughs> so yeah, he's actually here. Yeah. I know. It's pretty nice. Kevin was in that band, in that band that night. It was amazing. You know, I just hear him, you know, shred on, on this stuff was, I think, you know, no, pretty like, pretty one of a kind experience. Okay, so then I gotta <laughs> ask another question after this. Like, so yeah. how did you end up in the pop world? What actually got you there? Yeah, actually, so I, actually, uh, question I gotta ask first. Yeah, go back. Go you back. You be the yeah, pain yeah. in the butt I am about my no. podcast. You make more money playing pop music than jazz music, right? Yeah. Okay, so, there we go. Me... People don't believe me when I say that stuff. <laughs> yeah. No, nah, I mean, you know, it, it, it's true. Am, am I blurry like right now? Yeah, but don't worry about it. We don't release okay. the video part. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's for sure. Like pop music in in China, I think, and I think globally, like if you do it right, I think you can. Obviously, like you're 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 doing better financially. Um. You know, I I think the question that I. And I think everybody who in in my shoes as well, who you know, are ex jazz musicians, uh, who like go into the pop world, is like, is it as musically fulfilling? And can you make it as as musically fulfilling? Um, and and I mean, I the jury's still out on that. Yeah, <laughs> really? But, but I think you could. But I do but... think. Yeah, I, I think. I mean, the truth is like. It depends on what you like to listen to, you know, and it depends on what you're willing to like, you know, accept. Um, and I think for me, like being a coming from a jazz, well, not even from a jazz mentality, but from like the college music <coughs> mentality of like, there is a clear bad and a clear good. Um, and those things like realizing that a lot of those things that I disliked about modern pop music were like driven by maybe partly my own insecurities about, about, about my shows about, but then also realizing that there are things that I did like about pop music that I wasn't willing to admit in front of other people, you know, if, especially other like musicians of high caliber. Example. I just like, go you know, man, just like, like the, like great hooks, man. I, I, and, and lyrics, you know, like I love, <laughs> I know everybody like rags. Uh, this is a jazz podcast. So I'm I'm probably gonna get slammed here. No, but, dude, it's okay. Trust me. <laughs> Go say. No, I mean like people love to like talk shit about, uh, about like for example, like Taylor Swift. Like her music is very simple. Yes, when you get down to the production elements of it, um, on on one hand, the the production elements are incredibly well done. And, and being, and the mixing and the mastering, like, and being somebody who, who works on things like this, understanding how all of those elements work together is like, it is such a tricky, you know, there's such this, this dance of, of, um, of automation production, you know, work within a DAW 
and the and and there is still a huge like playing element too um and then like you know taylor swift like say what you will about like the simplicity of what she's writing about but you know to put to put that kind of lyrical content together and have it be hit every time like that's that's pretty incredible and and i you know i love 1989 that album um it's it's a to me it's like a it's one of her best albums um yeah and 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 i think that there are particular like you know the four chord thing is like everybody rags on the four chord thing but i i genuinely think like to make something good and catchy out of a four chord thing and have it m- to be melodically memorable you know that's something that i really they have you know feels value like a lot not stages yeah. of people yeah, singing arenas. her songs and i don't and even you... know her songs like that but i give her credit <laughs> and truthfully crazy, i hate man. to say it i just think a lot of these people are jealous of her true true yeah. jealous she... i mean i it's to the point where i i don't even like really like you know when i when i when i go back and i i think about the conversations that i had I'm just like, man, I was so ignorant, you know, of when I was talking about how simple this thing is, like harmonic. Yeah, I think if you're thinking in the language of jazz music and you're looking at these songs, like you're just, you're simply thinking from a harmonic perspective. Of course, these things are super simple, but there is an entire ocean, you know, entire another two more dimensions, you know, that are involved like the mixing mastering and the production that just make this song what it is and then the lyrical content as well um, that people could relate to the lyrics and all that stuff absolutely relatability is is a huge well the thing about that too which i never understood it's like she performs in front of seventy thousand people some nights if a jazz artist performed in front of one thousand people once a week He'll be on the cover of every jazz album, every magazine, yeah. everything. He'll be the Absolutely. biggest star. Absolutely. So I mean, a thousand people voting in downbeat is like if you got a thousand votes in downbeat, that's I, like I think you won every category. It. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so good point on that. Another magazine I make fun of, but I love them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I still subscribe to downbeat, you know. You know, good for you, because I do look at that. I look at those numbers. I'm like, wow, a thousand votes. You see, <laughs> people, I tell you this. You see, downbeat is the mecca. People don't believe me. I had a whole rant on that before. And people were I like, know. no, it is. I'm like, no, it is. I mean, you, if you just look at like how many people on, on Facebook like shun downbeat and then they get a, they get a, they get a, you know, they're listed like number 20 on, Thank on you. the downbeat point. And then they're like, yes, d- you oh, see, man. they got it right. <laughs> <laughs> Means I'm coming up. Yes. <laughs> And every single jazz artist sends their album to Downbeat. Absolutely. Where else would you send it? <laughs> there are not many places. Yeah, <laughs> yes. not many. So. Absolutely. I'm just, so you got, how did, what was the first gig for, in pop that you got? So the first gig that I got, um, actually was like in TV. Uh, so, you know, I, I was around, 2012, 2013, I got a call from a veteran producer, um, saxophone player. I'm actually a fantastic saxophone player. And, um, 
multi-instrumentalist and his name is Charlie Huntley. He's like a Canadian guy. He actually went to like Humber College back in the day, uh, as a, as a jazz, you know, as a jazz guy. And he'll, he won't also will refuse to pretend that he has anything to do with jazz, but he really does sound like pretty amazing. Um, and he called me because he needed a trombone player in his wait, wait, horn section for a TV So show. do you think he refuses yeah. because of that whole jazz community? We like to shun people. Yeah. I, I don't think he really cares about getting shunned so much as what it does for the pigeonhole, you know, like it pigeonholes you in a certain thing. And I, I think, uh, you know, for him, he's, he's a mixing engineer. He's a pianist. He's a guitar player. He's a producer. You know, he's all these things. And then for that to be the first, he's a saxophone player, you know, flute player, you know, for that to be the first thing on his resume card, I think is, you know, when, when he, when he has so much history and, you know, okay, work under his belt, I think that's for him. He's like, I'd rather be like a producer, you know, so, um, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think that's where it comes from. Um, so yeah, he called me in 2014 and, uh, he's, he needed a trombone player to sub in his horn section for this TV show called I am a singer. Um, and this, this TV show was actually franchised off of a Korean singer competition TV show. And the, the concept is pretty crazy. It's like American Idol on steroids. Basically, you know, if they, if, if American Idol had the budget, instead of having celebrity judges, it would be celebrities like singing and competing against each other. So, you know, like imagine like Lionel Richie versus Katy Perry, you know, and the audience has to vote on who they like more. Oh, right. Yeah. So that's what was, what's going on in that show. Um, so like the who's who of like singer, you know, of like huge celebrities in, in China, in the Mandarin speaking world, facing off in competition, you know, where the audience judged, judges them. And, uh, and they, and they were, you know, doing, they needed, uh, they, they had a full horn section, not full, but three part, four piece, four piece horn section. And, uh, and I think his trombone player, Doug, you know, needed, to go home to sort some stuff out. So he needed a sub for a couple of episodes. And so he called me cause he got my name through somebody else. And yeah, that was my first gig. Uh, it's pretty scary, but I actually jealous of you. I kind of want to see that now. I want to see Lionel Richie versus Kate Perry. I want to see <laughs> a lot of these people go up against each other. I know. And, and, and like sweating it out, you know, it's like, they're, they are nervous. They're crying. They're sweating. You know, they're, it, they like the TV station really puts them on a. It, it really puts the heat on them. You know, it, it's not just a friendly competition. It's like they actually have to perform and do well. Because I, I, you know, I, I I know some some of these singers now personally. I'm like fairly good friends with some of them, and who were on that show, and they were like, "Man, it's not drama. It's not made up." Like we, I was really crying that night. You know, I was so stressed out. <sighs> Yeah, me being uh, sidetracking on this. So do you think no, that I'm helps good. their music industry? I think it creates, I don't think it necessarily creates better music, but I think it creates better television, you know. Television. Do, you, like, do the artists better, get a, better it, drama? Do they get more sales or more 
Of course. Yeah. Like people tune in more, like it's on the headlines, you know, these artists will like, you know, and, and I think ultimately that is kind of what everybody, even in, in the American pop world, that's what they want to see. They want to see a more human side of, of these people that we worship. Um, but not so human that it's like, oh, like, you know, I'm face to face and then these people are not what we expect, but it's this curated, you know, thing. Um, and I think maybe that's where people get the idea that this is all like staged. Um, it's not necessarily staged. Like these are real emotions that people are going through, but yeah, it helps, it helps sell and it puts them through the ringer, you know, but, but, uh, you know, they're, but they're human just like everybody else. I'm sure money, you know, like, uh, and they volunteer to do this. So you could get a big Chinese star going against some nobody. Of course, you know, people are getting paid, you know, depending on their, their marketability and how big of a star they are. But I think, you know, at some point there was this idea that it was a kind of like has been, you know, people who maybe had a career like, you know, we're, we're selling stadiums like 20 years ago or 15 years ago who like want to make a comeback. And this TV show is the opportunity for them to like get back out in public without, you know, having to like, you know, I don't know, do some crazy marketing stunt or something. Like Understood. That, you know, so that, yeah. Yeah. That alone. <laughs> yeah. Cause they want, they maybe they want to release a new album and they need press marketing. Marketing in China really works a lot differently than it does in the States. Um, you really have to like be part of the TV shows in order for it to, in order for it to work, you know? Do you think that's better? No, I don't think so. I I mean, I, I think the things that I worry about as a producer, as a musician, as an arranger are like, can I give this artist the thing that most reflects what they want to say to the world about themselves. You know, like, can I give them a platform musically to do what it is that they feel like will help them express, you know, the the deepest part of their art and the visual and drama elements and stuff like that. That's for an A&R, you know, you got, you got hundreds of thousands of, people working in this industry who you know their job is just to come up with drama so let let them work on that you know <laughs> okay and then i need to know they have streaming over there yeah do, do the artists make a lot more money over there because it's a smaller market in a way because <laughs> mandarin checks as far as i know don't really hit the billboard charts over here yeah i mean it, it really is and I believe Japan's never, the biggest market in Asia. Yeah. Okay. Um, no, I, I actually, I think, so it's kind of weird because China is a separate territory. Like when, when you publish your stuff in, um, on CD baby or whatever, you'll notice you have an option that when, when you have, when you check the worldwide publishing thing, there's this asterisk in there, which says that China exclusive. Um, and there are a bunch of reasons for that. So your royalties from China are, I think this, 
there's there's a wild wild west that happens with publishing and i think a lot of people don't realize this and i i only i understand nominally what happens and i understand nomin- nominally like the conflicts that happen in publishing um but you know when the idea that we are getting paid per play is only partially correct because what happens is when you work for when you publish for CD baby or you publish, you know, you're directly publishing with Warner or Sony or anything like that. Because we're in a competitive system, uh, people's publishing is getting traded all the time. So depending on who you are as an artist, what you do as an artist, your publishing may be excluded or taken off of or put it onto certain platforms at any given time because of some thing that happened with some big whales up at the top. Maybe Sony signed this big artist and they're getting a huge amount of profits, but this artist, you know, maybe didn't sign all of his previous work to Sony. So now somebody else is collecting that. And as a way of like being passive aggressive with each other competitively, they collectively decide to pull somebody else's content. Well, I mean, those things aren't being talked about regularly uh and they're not being talked about in media they're not being talked about in you know because these things happen like too quickly but the same thing happens at a global level the catalogs of each company because this, we're in, we're working in a multi-competitive environment or right, in a competitive multi kind of state large um comp- corporate environment like these catalogs are being used as 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 collateral sort of to fight and compete for further market share. So things may get put on or pulled from different platforms, depending on what something, what happened with somebody else's catalog, you know, like maybe Taylor Swift had did something, maybe Frank Ocean did something, you know, and then because of that, a lot of these smaller catalogs, which are bundled into like different groupings may get pulled or, you know, maybe, you know, and, and the same thing happens at, at the national level, um, because China operates as its own territory, uh, the royalty collection cannot happen globally. Like it has to be done within Chinese entities. And there's a lot of complicated reasons, like political ones. Part of it being that like anything that gets released in China actually has to be approved by the government first. Um, and so, yeah, it gets very complicated and, there's a whole, you could, you could spend years kind of like trying to understand how music publishing works and the kind of inner workings and how, you know, all of these majors, like everybody just changes around for the majors into the, in, into jobs. So I sound like a crazy conspiracy theorist, but the point is that actually China is a huge market. Um, but the numbers that are coming out of China, we don't really know because they're um, they're different a different platforms, right? People don't use Spotify in China; they use like QQ, KKBox, you know, Wang Yiyun, like a bunch of alternative uh, music platforms, which we don't have access to in the United States. And so, streaming data is super difficult to obtain because they have different regulations on on reporting numbers. So 
I think from the outside looking into China, it seems that, yeah, China is a small, like in terms of the actual numbers coming out, China is a small portion. But actually, once you go into China, it's, I mean, probably besides India, just based on population alone, probably one of the biggest, you know, money generating markets in the world for music. Okay. So do you think jazz will actually grow in China? I do. You know, I, I, I really do. Like, having been there in Beijing, you know, mainland China for like 10 years and, and kind of seeing the way that it's just like, you know, still there through COVID, like great musicians playing, doing amazing stuff. And doing creative and, and, and music that's music that's creative, but music that's also like deeply in the tradition too. You know, it's a small scene, but it's definitely like constantly growing. You know, it's constantly growing. Like every time I go back, I listen to people playing and there are new, new people there, maybe like Chinese kids who like just grew up listening to like these local guys and then got into like, you know, studying at the local university and kind of came out and now they're part of the scene and writing their own music and contributing. It's, I definitely think it's, uh, every time I go back, I'm just like, man, this is Beijing for me and Shanghai, you know, those two places, even living in Taipei now and, and going back there, I'm like, man, these guys really just like, they get it. You know, they, they know like the music is authentic and it's, it feels real and it feels you know, people are are speaking. You know, they're they're saying what they want, what they want to say through their music, and it's um, okay. it's inspiring. And um, since it's been, you know, since I've been going back to, and forth from China, I really think that it's been you know, not only survived but like grown artistically, and you know, they're they're better venues and. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a fantastic place to be. Okay, that is. I mean, I would never have guessed that you would say yes, especially over there. <laughs> but yet, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, the thing that I would I would say is like when people talk about like kind of the cultural or maybe the political side of like being a jazz musician. Or, or, or the cultural side of like being an artist in China, there's like a certain political element that everybody kind of wants to ask. Like, well, like, you know, jazz music, how does it survive there being like, you know, given like political crackdown and stuff like that. And I think for me, the time that I've been there, I can definitely say that it, you know, the, 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 the music that the government, you know, the, the party in China is concerned with is like countercultural, um, countercultural music. And I think jazz music for them, like the stuff that, you know, that is like really pushing the boundaries, um, the interesting, really cool stuff really kind of flies under the radar because it's just too, it's too 
you know, out there for, for them to understand is like countercultural or counterpolitical music. But what it is, is, is it's like cats getting up every day, putting in the hours on their craft and then like going out to play a gig of the music that they want to play. And, um, and it, it's not really about like going against the government or, you know, being political about anything. It's, it's like cats like doing, doing stuff, um, and, and playing the music that they want. And that, and that to me, I think is like will always be really easy for, um, you know, an easy choice for me as a, as a musician to understand that what they're doing is not, not political, but it's, uh, it's, it's just like cats getting up and, and, and doing the thing, you know? Okay. Like I said, I don't really know much to ask you at that point because yeah, but do you think <laughs> compare the music scene in China to America, at least in terms of jazz? So, sorry, something cut off there for a second. No problem. Could you, uh, could you repeat In that? terms of jazz, compare it yeah. New York to Beijing. Oh, man. You know, actually, you know, it's funny. Like, Spike Wilner used to come through Beijing a lot uh, before COVID. And he would, like, sit in on jam sessions and stuff. And uh, and I think he wrote a letter, an email, um you know, to on the smalls, you know, email list. And he said something about how he hung out in Beijing and like went to a session and, you know, loved the general vibe there. I think, I think it's, you know, obviously like the New York scene is like the top, you know, 5% of the cats playing in New York are just a world-class, um, I think like Beijing for me, uh, has that feeling, although I'm not going to say that they like really compared to New York, you know, in terms of ability, but I would say that the, the guys that I came up playing with in Beijing are like, are pretty world-class musicians too. And I, I love the vibe there where it's like people putting in the honest time to like, you know, shed and then play gigs and, and try to do something, try to do something different. But also in the tradition, you know, like it's, it's pretty crazy. It's hard to explain, but like, yeah, Beijing really like has that feeling for me. Like people put in the time and they encourage the other, the young cats to like put in the time to learn the history and be authentic to the music, but also to like, you know, do their own thing. And there's like a really healthy balance of that, which I think is, Pretty, pretty awesome. Okay. So if we're going to say New York is number one in jazz, which is still debatable <laughs> to a lot of these other listeners. Fair enough. I still Fair think enough. it's number one. <laughs> I know. Uh, what would you rate Beijing? Man, I don't know. Come on. I don't like this rating system. <laughs> uh, we all get rated. I send an album into Downbeat. They give me one or five stars yeah. if they review it. Yeah. Well, I could, I could definitely rate Beijing separately. I mean, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I mean, what are the other cities out there? Like we're talking like, you know, in America or worldwide, we could say Chicago, yeah, we could I mean, say New Orleans, say, well, yeah, we could Chicago. say London, we could say Paris, we could even say, uh, Munich, we could say, 
Singapore. We could say Tokyo. Seoul. We yeah. could say Tokyo. We could say. I mean, Hannesburg. I, I, I haven't. So of the places that I've like really gone and I've checked out the scene. And when I say like really checked out the scene, I mean like in depth, like, you know, spent more than two or three weeks there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the places that I've done that are like mostly in East Asia. I haven't really checked out Chicago, but I know I have a, I have a lot of friends from Chicago who are, you know, deeply in the scene there. Man, I don't know. Maybe like on a, on a top 10 list, like I'd probably put Beijing like worldwide, like. Oh, but this is the other thing. Like, how are you going to rate it? Like, what are you rating it by? Like, are we talking about like livability as a musician? Are no, you know what I mean. No, we're not talking livability we're talking about the and scene? all this stuff. We're talking just the scene, okay? If that's the case, New York right. is zero. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm saying like New York, yeah, New York like would fall a lot lower if you're talking about like A lot lower. A lot of them don't live in right? the five boroughs. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Man, I mean, Beijing is a small scene. I'll give it that. There's like 30 plus musicians maybe in Beijing. So I'm not going to say, I'm not going to compare it to New York in the sense that like it's a great scene with a ton of people and, you know, a huge, like in the time that I was there, we could barely put together a big band. That was like a struggle to get enough guys together to put together a big band. Um, and, uh, you know, we had enough drummers and we had enough, Weirdly, we had enough bass players, but we just didn't have enough like trumpet players, for example, um, or at least enough trumpet players who could like play lead say, parts. at that level. Yeah, um, yeah, at that level. Uh, so I had to fly in guys from Shanghai. Um, but in terms of just like, if you're looking at like the top five percent of the guys playing in Beijing, like I would say they're world class. You know, um, I don't know, top ten maybe like. Five? Okay. Six? Okay. Yeah. I'm just thinking like the place I've been, Tokyo, spent time there, hanging out with cats there. Singapore, spent time there. You know, Taipei, obviously I've been here. Uh, You know, I've spent enough time in New York to know a bunch of the cats there now. Shanghai, Beijing. Uh, yeah, I would say it's okay. put Beijing at five or six. Yeah. Understood. And <laughs> finally, I have to ask, if you could remove all the boundaries and constraints, what type of project would you make and who would be on it? Man. Okay, so... Doesn't have to be jazz, in your case. Yeah. So for me, like... <clears throat> I mean, I'm, I consider myself kind of lucky because I sort of was given this opportunity for the last album that I did. Um, my, my boss, um, at the time and really close friend of mine, who's, he's a, he's a drummer and a very famous producer in, in China. He really like has always supported a lot of indie stuff and then also like a lot of, the musicians who work for him are like have background as jazz musicians. So he's always kind of tried to find ways to like support us through his larger projects to like use those connections <clears throat> to build um, some relationships um, to allow him to like support us. And so 
in 2019, he kind of approached me and two of my other, you know, bros who were, you know, one is Lawrence Koo, who's a, who's a amazing guitar player and Toby Mack, who's a trumpet player. And he told us the three of us, he was interested in bundling us together, um, as a package to sell to, not to sell, but to like offer to, uh, Universal. Um, and Universal was basically going to like help us to fund our, an album, whatever we want to do. And, you know, there would be a, a package and you would be able to just like use that to make an album and do whatever the heck we want. So when I basically, it's like a cart, you know, block to like to do whatever musically you wanted. And at the time, I really wanted to work with my, my, my project at the time. Called the Spice Cabinet, and we really did. And we, <laughs> it, it was like a college band that we played. It had these silly names called the Spice Cabinet. I understand but that. The vibe me. was that we, yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. We, we that was like how you marketed yourself in college. Was like you made this ridiculous name. You know, we had another band called Funkin' Donuts. You know, I like that one. Was like, Dang, that was, that was pretty <laughs> good. Funkin', Donut, Funkin Donuts yeah. was killing, man. They did like Tower Power covers, and like it was, it was pretty fire. Like for a college band, that was a tight group. Um, so I decided I wanted to do an album with the spice cabinet and the spice cabinet, you know, up until that point, we had basically were like a college party band, you know, Friday nights, we'd like play jazz, you know, not, not, not all jazz at all, but like we, I take like top 40 stuff and I put like a backbeat to it and, you know, write some like crazy changes for a solo section. And like, we'd be playing like, you know, five horn section, five horn piece. And like a rhythm section, like a guitar player, bass, I, I was playing keys and we just like play instrumental versions of these like top 40 covers at a, at a bar in Beijing and people were like going wild until like 3 a.m. And that's like a pretty, pretty hilarious and awesome opportunity. So I really wanted to take this group and do some original music with it. And, you know, with this universal package, you know, I basically had a, had a, an, an open check to do like whatever I wanted to do. So I, I did this album and, and I worked together with Derek Stepneo, who's like my co-producer and we're a super good friends. He's a, he comes really from the blues and pop world and he's been in that world for a long time. And my, the, the idea that I wanted to do is I, my concept was that I wanted to, I wanted to do an album that you, something that you can't just can't do live. It's like too complicated. You know, like with all these kind of like vibe changes, you know, a lot of like pop production on like a, on, on top of, but not overriding like the underlying kind of jazz elements that like kind of that hard hitting fusion thing that we, we love to do. And I wanted to do it better than like I had, you know, than we could do in a live setting, which means like a lot of automation and a lot of like editing and stuff. And there's a whole, you know, thing about I can get into about like why why we should be editing and not just like doing like rough taking the the rough take from the studio and like putting that out. I uh, see. I wish you brought that up earlier. That would have been a whole debate. Oh. <laughs> All right. Well, maybe we can get into it on the second podcast. Yes. I don't know. <laughs> but um, for me, that was that was really what I wanted to do was to to make something really tight but really reflected what I wanted. And also at the time COVID was, we were in the middle of COVID and the band was split up across the world. So I knew we were going to have to do things 
separately, like recording at home and stuff. So it was going to have to be much more, you know, produced. Yes. So we did that album and, and there's just a lot of, it's not really, I, I don't know. I wouldn't call it a jazz album. I would call it like just. Is it pleasant on the I mean, ears or is it one of those jazz albums? <laughs> I would say some of it might be. Some of it is definitely weird. Like I definitely threw some like atonal uh, atonal 12 tonal <laughs> yeah some some bizarre bizarre stuff maybe it's like you could call it like more cinematic i i don't know i don't know but experimental I, also the idea experimental yeah sure <laughs> yes. but but with also like a solid basis i think in like you know backbeat stuff uh, and and some really weird weird changes you know that and people are playing some great shit on so i did that um, and if I was, so if I were going to do that album again, I, you know, one of, one of the people that I would love to have play, uh, you know, and say like, I read, I just rewrite everything on that album, like start from scratch. Uh, honestly, like the one guy I would love to hear just like play something crazy on that is like Julio Shaw. Okay. I would love to have him like take a crazy solo, you know, cause, and you know, with, or, or Tavon. Tavon, I'd say, Tavon. yeah, but why, yeah. I'm just curious. Why? Cause I, I really like Jaleel's, like what he was doing with, um, sort of around 2019, 2018 with like his, some of his like use of pedals. And I love Tavon's use of pedals too. You know, some of the modern stuff that he was doing, you know, I mean, Jaleel, like, I think it's, it would be really interesting to see what he would do with some of like the more dynamic sections in my, you know, in, in like if I could like rewrite some stuff no, to I have can. like some really kind of open dynamic stuff. I would love to see what he would do. And then, and then Tavon, cause I love what Tavon does with loops and things like that. I think, I think Tavon is like really innovative man, in terms of what he can like bring to. You know, like the whole COVID thing where <clears throat> we just couldn't play together as a group anymore. Like, what are you going to do? You know, and and for a while, like, honestly, the best thing we could come up with was like playing over FaceTime, you know, or like some modified FaceTime shit. And that to me was like, man, like Zoom concerts. You know, yeah, I know. We're just doing the same shit, but on FaceTime, you know, it's like with slightly better lag, you know. So for for me, it was like listening to Tavon do his Ableton set was like, yo, like that's really interesting that he's able to like do this with himself and also to push it in terms of like what he's aesthetically creating, but also like, you know, it's still true to him and super, super, super cool. I love that. Okay. Well, yeah. sir, it's been an honor. <laughs> I, tell the people your social media your website, where to find yeah. your music. Cause I don't know if they're going to have problems finding your music. I'm on Spotify. Uh, the spice cabinet is my, is like sort of the band that I do the most stuff with right now. I'm a producer. So you'll hear a lot. I mean, a lot of the stuff that you'll find on Spotify that I'm doing in the pop world is, is under that name, under Terry Shea. Um, but you know, that's sort of artist focused. Uh, for me, my main project is the Spice Cabinet. Um, you can find us on Instagram at uh, Spice Cab, 
or my personal Instagram is to Jasmine. I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you later. Um, and I'm on Facebook. My website is terryshea.com and, um, that's pretty much it. LinkedIn, if you want it. <laughs> LinkedIn. Yeah. Well, everyone, <laughs> this is Leanna from Improv Exchange. Thank you. Have a good one. Thank you so much for having me, man. That's that on jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange. <laughs>